As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all here. Um, before we begin, uh, let me reemphasize one announcement that was just made. Um, about the Edwardsville Criterium, the bike race that's coming up this Saturday. Um, we have an opportunity during this bike race, as we've had in the past few years, to uh, really reach out and serve our neighbors. Um, and it's, of course, great PR for our church, um, but it's also a way that we can serve our, our neighbors and uh, folks in the, in the area here and show them um, what the love of Jesus really means, that it's not just um, us withdrawing here, but it's actually a, uh, us, uh, because of the love of Jesus, reaching out and serving our community. And so, um, like was announced a moment ago, there is a sign-up sheet out here. We'd love to have you sign up either to help set up or to help with teardown. But there's also going to be a hospitality room that we're going to put on here. And so we need volunteers for that um, so that people can come in and uh, get refreshments um, throughout the whole uh, process, throughout the whole race. And uh, it'll be a great way for us to to really um, show the love of Christ to our uh, community here. So if you can, please sign up out there, and, um, and uh, we'll, we'll do that together. Um, let's turn now to what we just read, Psalms 42 and 43. Um, and uh, I, I love how the Psalms address real life, right? That's the, the sermon series title here, Real Life. Um, the Psalms get down into the real struggles that we deal with day in and day out. Um, it's not just, you know, kind of exalted religious literature that's removed from our real lives. Um, but as w- we read just now, this psalmist deals with the real issues that we deal with. Um, in this case, depression. Um, and uh, 
trying to find delight in the midst of depression. Um, this, is, this is our daily lives, right? <laughs> Every day is not better than the one before it, necessarily. Um, sometimes our life seems like it's on a downhill slope. And uh, sometimes Christians fall prey to this kind of um, Pollyannish, this unrealistically, um, falsely optimistic view. Um, I, I remember a poster that I saw one time in a Christian bookstore. It had, uh, at the top, it had a, a, smile, a, a frowning face, rather, and it said, my life before Jesus. And you look down the second panel, and it says, uh, it has a smiling face, and it says, my life after Jesus. Any questions? Question mark. And um, that's not true for our lives. That's just not the way that it is. Hardly, right? It's not as if you become a Christian and suddenly like, oh, it's smooth sailing right into judgment day. Um, rather, <laughs> rather, um, it's actually quite the opposite. In fact, the New Testament is, is um, shocking for how forward the early church was with the, the, the promise of suffering. Um, it, in Acts 14, 22, uh, the, the, one of the apostles is encouraging some early believers, some people who had just started to follow Jesus. They had been pagans before, and he encourages them. That's the word that's used in the text. And his encouragement is, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a promise. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. That was his encouragement. The apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans eight seventeen. He He told the followers of Jesus, that they would be fellow heirs with Christ, provided they suffer with him in order that they may also be glorified with him. Suffering is required of Christians. It is the normal, the normal life uh, of anyone who follows Jesus. It's one of the few certainties in our life, really. Um, And for that reason, um, depression often trails Christians, sometimes overwhelms us. Um, our lives are, are more often like the life of William Cooper, a famous 17th century poet who um, was a follower of Jesus um, and basically struggled with depression his entire adult life, um, was in and out of even asylums, um, and was basically constantly under the care of somebody else for his, for his adult life. Uh, I mean, he, he literally had like suicide attempts, multiple suicide attempts in his adult life. Um, despite the fact that, that he was a follower of Jesus. It didn't alleviate his suffering, quite the opposite. But by the grace of God, there were these moments in his life where it was like the sun would shine through the clouds. He would find grace in the midst of despair, hope in the midst of trouble. Um, he wrote some incredible poetry and hymns, um, not, not saying that there was an easy solution to suffering or to depression, um, but that there, that there is hope that's available. I think it, it, um, it really, uh, su- some of his poetry really sums up the message of this psalm. Let me read um, just one of his poems. This is called Light Shining Out of Darkness. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 
His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Our experience is more often like Cooper's than like the optimistic poster that I mentioned. Um, We all struggle with sadness at some level, but some of us are even predisposed to um, deep depression because of emotional or physical problems that we have. Um, It's not, of course, an excuse to give in or to go too quickly to medicine, although there are certainly times where that's necessary. Um, But this is actually, I think, it's a summons to fight against depression, to not give in because depression is ultimately um, defeatable. Not an easy battle. It's not, a, it's not a one-time solution. And it may not be a permanent solution either. But by fighting against it, you can resist um, and overcome depression. And, and, and I mention this. Um, I think it's important that we all recognize that there are varying levels of depression among us. Um, because it, it's very easy for Christians especially people who don't deal with depression, to look at somebody who does and to um, kind of crush, crush their faith because of it and to say, it, you're just, you're not believing. It's your faith. Your faith isn't strong enough. Um, and and we, we have to be careful with each other. We have to give each other grace, brothers and sisters. Um, we are, we are the church of, of Jesus and it's our call to love one another. And so to give each other an extra, an extra measure of understanding um, when we can't see into someone else's sorrow doesn't mean that those sorrows aren't real or that they're contrived or caused by some sort of uh, giving in. We all know these sufferings, and so it's, it is such a help to have uh, the, the record of someone else's working through this in the Psalms. That's what we have here today. Um, like I said, they're not triumphalistic, but they're realistic. Um, they're not pessimistic. They're full of faith uh, that there can be hope in the midst of sadness. Um, this is a hymn. It would have been used in a corporate worship gathering like this. Um, and consider, consider what it talks about. Unanswered prayer, hopes deflated, um, questioning God even. And yet, in the middle of that, a call to, to stand firm, to wait for God, to hope in him. So we're going to treat these two psalms together, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, because they flow together very nicely. Um, you see that there's that repeated refrain at the end of 42 and 43, and then halfway through 42, um, repeated three times, it kind of breaks it nicely into three sections. And those three sections are uh, 42, 1 through 5, the drought of depression, 42, 6 through 11, the response of faith, and 43, 1 through 5, the request for help. So we'll look at these three sections, and then we'll um, try and draw out a few lessons learned about uh, battling against depression. Let me start by looking at these sections. So the first one, chapter 42, Psalm 42, verses 1 through 5, the drought of depression. Let me set the situation for you. Um, You see in the header there that this psalm is written by one of the sons of Korah. 
Uh, They were this group of priests, basically, kind of a a subgroup within the priests who helped at the temple. They helped lead worship. They obviously wrote worship songs as well. Um, But for whatever reason, this, this, uh, this priest, this guy who was from the sons of Korah, is separated from the people of God. He's used to being at the temple, being surrounded by, by people who are worshiping God with him, but now he's far away. Um, it says in verse 6 there that he's uh, in the land of Jordan at Mount Hermon, removed from the temple by quite a distance. Um, he's in a foreign land, and so he's surrounded by mockers, people who who are antagonizing him for his faith. You, you see that repeated phrase in there. He says, they say to me day and night, where's your God? <laughs> where's your God? He's alone in the midst of people who are not, they're not atheists, but they have their own religion and they reject his religion. And just imagine for a moment the, the way that it would have been. Um, the, the ancient Israelites, you may know uh, in their law, God gave them this law and he said, don't make any images of me. I'm too great for you to try and boil me down into some sort of little idol or image. Um, but these foreigners who were around this, this guy who's writing the psalm, they, you know, for them, idolatry was just a way of life. That was their religion. And so they had these little images. And so when they say to this, to this priest, where's your God? What they mean is, I know where my God is. You're separated from your temple. And so you can't worship. Not me. I have my God with me at all times. If I go on vacation, I pack him in my suitcase along with my other belongings. I always know how to access my God. I know how to pray to him. I mean, it it may seem simplistic to us to pray to an image, but for them, it was was, uh, an assurance. I know where my God is. And for this this psalmist, their, uh, their antagonism, their mocking, his faith is beginning to get to him. And so he says in 42.9, why have you forgotten me, God? You see that doubt beginning to, to take root in him? So that's the attitude that the psalmist is confronted with and he begins to feel a sense of abandonment. That's why he says here, my soul pants for you like the deer pants for flowing streams. The word he uses to describe this panting is not a, a common word for thirsty. It's a very, um, it's a very uh, drastic word. And it, it's as if, he says, my, my soul pants like this deer panting. It's as if this deer is in the midst of a drought, in fact. Um, and you get this kind of dry, rattly, panting sound when you, this, this animal's gone without water for an extended period of time. Uh, we understand this, all right? As, as you drove in today, if you drove from any distance, you probably drove past withered cornfields. Um, there's desolation in the land because there's no rain. And, it, and so the animals are, in fact, near to death. And he's saying, that's how I feel. I'm surrounded by spiritual desolation. Everything around me has been destroyed. It's a, it's a drought of depression in his soul because he, he can find no support around him. And so the psalmist prays and he cries out to God sincerely and with tears, he says, day and night, with tears. He says he pours out his soul in verse four. Desperate prayer, that's what he means. And what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens from his perspective. There is no answer 
God doesn't change the situation. Things continue basically as they have been. The people who mock his faith and his God aren't destroyed. There's no immediate judgment. And isn't this so often our experience? You pray earnestly. You have a need, a real need. And you cry out to God. And you feel like he's not listening to you or he doesn't care. The psalm, this psalm addresses that issue. Where are you, God? I'm, I mean, I'm not actively sinning against you. I'm repenting of my sins. I'm coming to you in truth. I trust in you. And you're not, you're not hearing me. You're not answering my prayers. So when he, when he desperately cries out to God, he has to face this question. And the Bible uh, uh, encapsulates this for us in this psalm. The Bible's not simplistic. It's not, it's not just giving us some easy faith, you know. It confronts the real issues that we deal with. And so in the midst of this drought of depression where he, he feels his pr- prayers being unanswered, um, he says that to him, Joyful worship is only a memory, right? Here's this guy, this priest who would have been in, in the midst of the temple all the time with people who were worshiping around him all the time. And in 42.4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. Goes on to explain this scene of worship. But to him, it's only a memory. It's only a passing memory. He can't access it because he's separated and of course, he, he ends in 42.5 with this refrain, this, this note of hope. But this first section has really been um, an explanation of the drought of depression in his life. Second section, 42, verses 6 through 11, is the response of faith. Now, when we're dealing with depression, what is the response of faith? I, I think it's remembering the Lord. Remembering the Lord. Look at 42 verse 6. He says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. The psalmist is saying, Because I'm overwhelmed, I turn to you, God. My response is to be driven back to you. I think this is really important because it's, it's not our natural response. The natural response when you're confronted with depression like this I think is actually to move away from God, to withdraw from him in some way. Um, perhaps you felt this temptation, right? You, you see verses in the Bible like rejoice in the Lord always, but in the midst of real trouble in your life, you say, how can I do that? How can I rejoice with what's going on around me, with what's happening in my life? Um, and so we, we feel the, this temptation that maybe you, you, you think, some of these thoughts. God doesn't care. He won't help me unless I'm rejoicing in him already. That's not his problem to solve. I'm supposed to come to him with rejoicing and then he'll help me. He doesn't want me to come unless I have the right attitude. And I would submit to you that these are lies motivated by unbelief. Unbelief is, is always at the root of depression. Unbelief in God's promises. But the response of faith is to remember the Lord. 
not to forget him, not to move away from him. We have to resist that temptation and instead respond with faith. So how does the psalmist do that? In 42.6, we see first he, he, he describes this situation. He's far away at Mount Hermon, um, beyond the Jordan. So he's separated by this giant river from the people who worship with him and from the temple where he's used to worshiping. And in 42.7, he describes how this feels. It's like crashing waterfalls. So he's in this mountain scene and he says, uh, deep in 42.7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. But notice, even in the midst of, of explaining this feeling, like waves are crashing over his head, wave after wave, he can't get away from it. He says, all your waves and all your breakers are crashing over me. He recognizes that God stands behind these actions. God's not sinning in causing this, but, but to the psalmist, it, it's, it, uh, it's encouraging to his faith to remember that God is still sovereign. He's still in control behind this situation. God has not fallen off his throne when hard things happen to him. And so he says, God, I recognize you behind this. I recognize that you're still king over this even as he questions why God is doing this. And so in 42.8, he says this, By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. We see his response. Despite the fact that it feels like waves are crashing over him, he can still remember God's promise of steadfast love. This word that he uses, steadfast love, it was like a, 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 it was a, it was a very common religious term to them. It, it represented God's promise. It means loyal love. And so the idea is, it, it's a promise that God will not withdraw his love. So, so do, you, do you see how he's beginning to view this through the eyes of faith? His situation hasn't changed. Things have not gotten easier for him. The mockers have not stopped. His faith is still being challenged. And yet, he responds by saying, despite the fact that these hard things are happening, I recognize, God, that your love has not left me. Your promises are still true in my life. The psalmist knew that no matter what became of him and what happened with these troubles in his life, God's promise was sure for him. Even if, if these troubles ended in death, even if he died in the midst of these trials, for him, it, it's a challenge to faith, but it's not a loss of faith. Consider, sometimes, uh, especially you know, in your uh, religion courses, you may hear your professors say, um, in the Old Testament, there was no, there was no uh, belief in the afterlife. That's something that Christians developed and then they read back into the Old Testament. And so the, the idea would be, you know, if, if this psalmist dies, he would have no hope. All of his hope was in this life. But that's, that's not true. That's not true. Belief in the resurrection and in, in God's, uh, uh, in death after life for people who trusted in God is, is built into the Old Testament at a very basic level. Look at Psalm 49, where we see, we see this faith, that even if these trials end in death, 
um, the psalmist will, will have uh, his faith, his faith will be, um, will be sure. In, in Psalm 49, verse 14, the psalmist, different psalmist probably, says this. Of the evil one, he says, Their form, evil people, shall be consumed in Sheol, the grave, death, with no place to dwell. They will be destroyed in death. They will have suffering and death. But of himself, listen to what the psalmist says in verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. There's hope after death for this psalmist. He recognizes death cannot separate me from God. His promises are sure and they extend beyond this life. And so the, the psalmist, turn back to Psalm 42, can even say in 42.8 that he could sing in the middle of the night. Psalm 42.8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. These psalms were not just something he used when he was together with other people. The psalms were to him a, a, a way of crying out to God. He, he says he sings them at night, right? Surrounded by terror and enemies. Um, he continues to trust and he continues to call out to God and to remember him. And in the same way, the promise of God to everyone who believes in Jesus is, is to us an anchor of hope. Um, it's what we hold on to. So, I mean, this, you see this psalmist remembering God. That's the response of faith in his life. We have something more sure. The New Testament uh, records the, the, the writings of the early church. And they said that, in fact, the Old Testament prophets longed to look into the things that we now have. They wished that they could have understood what was going to happen with Jesus. There were these prophecies that gave them just the, the slightest hint of what was going to happen, as if they were seeing shadows but we, living on this side of the cross and the resurrection, have a more certain hope. Because we've, we, have, we have read of the message of Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified and who also was resurrected. We have a, a deeper promise of hope because God has proven it by raising his son from the dead. That's where we hang our hope. And Jesus has promised that he will return he will return and that everyone who, who puts their trust in Jesus will be accepted by God, both here and forever. That's what the promise of eternal life means. It begins now for everyone who trusts in Jesus. It's not, you know, a miraculous change though. It's not, right? It's not that, that perspective that, was, uh, that that poster gave. Suddenly everything's easy. But eternal life begins even in the midst of our sorrows here. For all who by faith come to Jesus and recognize themselves as needy. I'm a sinner. I do bad things. I do bad things to other people. I think bad things. But the promise that we have to hold on to is the promise of the death and the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus and acceptance for all who come to him in faith. Now, it may seem odd then that after this response of faith in 42.9, he seems to almost slip back into depression. Um, and so he says almost, I mean, 42.9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? <laughs> um, these are the Psalms. 
It, isn't it amazing that, that someone with so much faith would then turn around and say, why have you forgotten me? That these corporate worship songs would have been a place for them to sing together. Why have you forgotten me, God? But even in the midst of this, I think his faith is, is very, very clear. Consider, look at what he says. I say to God, what does he call him? My rock. God is, is to him a, a fortress. He's protection. He's, he's, he's strong and he will protect him even when he doesn't sense that protection around him. And secondly, um, I think we see his faith here in this response because people without faith in the midst of a crisis ask for immediate deliverance. But that's not what the psalmist does. Instead, he actually calls out for God. He doesn't say, deliver me. He says, why have you forgotten me? Come back to me, God. Bring me back to you. Strengthen my faith. That's, that's true faith. And that is a model for us, right? Unanswered prayers, take heart. Call out to God. Why have you forgotten me, God? Model your prayers after this. Unbelief urges us to move away from God when we're, when we're depressed or when we're suffering or, or in the midst of a trial. But we must fight with faith against depression and against unbelief and move back towards God as we can. By remembering him. The third point here, Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5, this is the request for help. And in this final section, we see the psalmist begins to, to request directly from God. The first thing he asks for is deliverance and justice. He says, God, vindicate me, argue my case. You see these, these folks around me who are attacking me and mocking you? You, you argue against them. You take my case like a lawyer in court. Prove me right. Prove yourself right. Secondly, he asks for God to bring him back to himself. Look at verse 3, 43, 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. He's using this, this language that's reminiscent of the Exodus. He's saying, God, bring me back from this faraway land to where you are, to, he says, your holy hill, which was what the, the temple was built on. The temple's built on this little hill, and he's saying, God, restore me to that place where I can worship alongside other followers of you, where I can, where I can make sacrifices to you and come directly into contact um, with those who follow you. But note, he recognizes that there may not be an immediate deliverance. He may not be restored to Jerusalem and to the temple immediately. And so he bases his hope somewhere else. In verse 4, he says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. My exceeding joy. To him, even more than the temple sacrifices, more than worshiping with other people who followed God, his great hope was God himself my exceeding joy. And that's why he can have this refrain of hope in there. Despite the fact that, that the problem hasn't been solved, he can still have hope because he can, he can come directly into contact with God. He doesn't need an idol. He doesn't ultimately need the temple. He can cry out to God just as we can. 
even when he's uh, overwhelmed by depression and mockers. And that's why each section ends with this note of hope. Because he's, he's crying out to God directly. To God, my exceeding joy, he calls him. And he's looking forward to that day when joy will be restored to him. Not necessarily without suffering around him, but trusting that that day will come. This word, he, he, he says, hope in God. That's the second half of this refrain. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. It means wait for God. Hope in God. Same word, wait for God. Wait for him. The day is coming. I don't know when. It may be a long ways off, but he's, he's counseling himself to wait. So let me... Um, Let's turn now to three lessons that we learn about battling depression. Three lessons from this psalm. The first one is this. The root of depression is unbelief, and so we must respond with faith. I've already mentioned this, so I won't, I won't go into it again, but I do want to make some comments on it and how we can apply it. There are many causes of depression in our life. Um, as I mentioned, I, I realize that there are physical causes sometimes. Um, and some people are predisposed to depression. Um, there may be things that you cannot escape in your own life. I don't deny that. Um, even just <laughs> things as natural and physical as a lack of sleep in your life. I imagine many of us have had those days where you didn't get good sleep the night before and the next day is a wreck. And, and so I think we have to fight this battle on many levels. Get good sleep. Get outside and enjoy the outdoors. Um, I mean, look around. God created the entire world for, for us to enjoy, to point us back to him. The, the trees cry out, there is a God. He loves us. He made this beautiful world for us. So, so we have to take advantage of, of, of all sorts of um, tactics in the fight against depression and against and, uh, and, and in the fight for faith. However, we can't remember that the root of depression is unbelief. Forcing us, pushing us to doubt God's promises. And so we should fight depression by faith. By faith in the promises of God. Specifically the promises of God in Jesus Christ. To everyone who trusts in him. This does not mean that, that depression will disappear quickly, that there will be a, a, an easy victory or even a, a single victory. However, fighting by faith is the path to progress in this battle. So that's the first thing. The second is this. We must speak to God. We must speak to God. When we're depressed by whatever trouble it may be, we as Christians should pursue God. We should pursue him, not turn away from him. We should cry out to him. And, and again, the, the psalmist is, is so incredibly honest. The psalms should be to us a framework, a, a way to structure our own prayers. Um, we should say, why have you forgotten me, God? <laughs> I mean, the, the Bible is, is setting us up for that. We should take these words and make them our own. I, I do want to, to say to, to make a, 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 give a minor caveat, I think that um, this doesn't mean that we have the right to be angry at God. Some, some Christian authors say that we should be angry at God when, when bad things happen. And I think there's a very, a very clear distinction between that attitude and the one that the psalmist has. But what we learn from this is that God, God's, he's not weak. 
He's not going to be pushed over by hard questions put to him. Questions even of doubt. Where are you, God? Why have you forgotten me? And so we must speak to God. And um, I think we'd be helped if we used these psalms as a basis for our crying out to God. Memorize them. Memorize them. Before the storm of depression hits your life, be prepared. And if you're in the midst of one of these times right now, go home and um, you know, pray through these once a day. And I think as, you, as the psalm becomes, these two psalms become a part of your own uh, internal spiritual vitality, you'll, you'll begin to follow this path and you'll see the progression from real trials, real, real depression, the kind that overwhelms you and that you feel like you can't get out from under and you will progress with the psalmist towards this, this response of faith and towards overcoming depression. Speak to God and use the Psalms to do it. And the third thing is we must speak to ourselves. We must speak to ourselves. This may seem a little odd, but we can't just listen to ourselves. We have to talk to ourselves, if that makes sense. I'll explain. Too often we just allow ourselves to be carried along by whatever thought comes to us. Um, we listen to ourselves, and this naturally leads us to complaining and eventually to depression. And instead, we must be active. We must speak to ourselves. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones put it best. He said this. He said, I suggest that the main trouble in this matter is this, that we allow our self to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Consider those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Your self is talking to you. Now, the psalmist's answer was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? He says to himself. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him, and so he stands up and and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The point is this. We cannot be passive about our thought life. If we allow ourselves, our natural tendency is to move towards depression. It's to move towards despair. Towards unbelief. Towards complaining. Towards this, this downward, downward spiral. And so we have to be active and we have, to, we have to, to speak to ourselves. So what do we say to ourselves? <laughs> Again, we follow the psalmist here. Question yourself first. Question yourself like the psalmist does here. He says, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? We should question ourselves to show the absurdity of unbelief. To expose the unbelief underneath our depression. To uncover it so that then we can address it and respond to it by faith. After exposing the unbelief, then the psalmist begins to speak to himself. After first questioning himself, then he says to himself, hope in God. Like I said, this means wait for God. Let me re-ask the question from earlier. Why do some of our prayers go unanswered? This has a connection with, with wait for God. I hope that by now some sort of question, some sort of answer to that question 
Why do our questions go unanswered? Why do our prayers go unanswered? Some sort of question has been developing. Um, some sort of answer, excuse me, has been developing in our minds as we've been reading through this. I think this psalm points us in the right direction. So why do our prayers go unanswered? I'm going to borrow a quote from Hudson Taylor and kind of reuse it. He said, without an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Without an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. (laughs) Right? The, The life that's easy, the life that has no troubles, we just go along from, from one easy event to the next. Nothing's ever difficult. Requires no true dependence on God. You may have faith. You may not have faith. You can just kind of skate along. But when, when we're tested, when our faith is put to the test, then, then we're forced to really depend on God in the midst of, of suffering. Then we see, I need God. I depend on him. I turn to him in the midst of of my depression. If we're never forced to risk it all, there is no need for faith. And so the psalmist says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Wait for God. Wait, because he has not necessarily promised a miraculous deliverance. He's not promised that that things will get instantly better. But in the midst of these trials, your faith deepens and it's actually on display in front of others as well. The mockers who mock this man's faith will see it, will will see the strength, the security, the truth of his faith in the midst of, of, of these, these mockings, this antagonism. And it proves, it proves the depth of his faith, that there is something more there than just the opiate of the masses, as Marx called religion. There is true faith here, and there is something, there's something underneath his faith. It cannot just be dismissed as psychological comfort. And so we hold on to God um, in the depth of our despair, by talking to ourselves often. Let me conclude now um, with a short meditation on the kind of person that this develops us into. If we respond by faith in this way, we will develop a, a deep joy, not, not mere happiness, not superficial happiness. And the difference, of course, is that happiness just superficial happiness, is, is washed away. It evaporates in the face of real problems in life. But deep joy will last, and it will sustain our faith, even through depression, overwhelming depression. Let me give you an illustration. <clears throat> Consider two trees. On the outside, these trees look exactly alike. They're, they're both similar in size, and, and you can't tell anything just by looking at them. But one of these trees has endured prolonged drought. And because of that, the roots of this tree go down deep in order to find water. Because there's no, there's no surface level water, and so the roots 
push down deep in order to find water to sustain it. The second tree has not endured any, any drought, and so its roots remain at a superficial level. And when a giant windstorm blows through this forest, one tree stands and one tree doesn't. Why is that? It's because the one with deep roots is able to withstand the storm that comes against it. It may have broken branches, but it will last. And the other one is, is forced over. That's how the person who is forced by the depression of drought to send deep roots of faith into the promises of God is sustained even in the midst of, 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 of overwhelming depression in the harshest of life's trials.